special guest this morning, Brad Briscoe. Uh, last night we launched Forge Shreveport, which we've been talking about for a few months now. Uh, Forge Shreveport is a uh, local missionary training organization that Covenant Church is a part of, and so we're excited to finally get it off the ground and get it going. Brad was our guest speaker, and uh, he's here to share with us this morning as well. Brad is the director of bivocational church planning for the North American Mission Board. He's been a church planner um, and a number of other things, and so we're excited to have him today. So y'all do me a favor and welcome Brad as he comes this morning. Well, good morning. It's very, very good to be with your church family here this morning. Uh, So as Wes said, uh, usually when I introduce myself, I say my day job is I work for the North American Mission Board. And then on a strictly volunteer basis, then I work for this group called Forge America. So we're really excited about uh, the launch of Forge Shreveport uh, here in this area. Um, so I'm from Kansas City. I'm married, been married for 23 years. We have a uh, 22-year-old son, a 17-year-old son, and a 7-year-old daughter. So they're very spread out. Um, so uh, just really uh, enjoy, really, I love the baptisms, and uh, I loved our time of corporate worship this morning. I'll... I'll have to share. There's something that happened during one of those songs I, I want to wait and, and share as we kind of get into this morning's topic. I just, well, there's some very powerful lines in one of those songs that I had never heard before. So um, we're going to start off by doing something a little different this morning. We're going to play a little word association game. So you guys look like a pretty safe crowd. Um, so in other words, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say a word. I'm just going to throw out this word, and I want you to shout out... <laughs> the very first thing that pops in your head, okay? Again, you look like a safe crowd, so Weston, are you nervous about this at all? Okay. Um, So seriously, I don't want you to say what you think I might want to hear. I want you to shout out the very first thing that comes to your mind, all right? So here's the word. Hospitality. Food, okay. What else? Home, home, food. What else? Come on. What? Martha Stewart, right? Yeah, Martha Stewart, yeah. What else? Hospitality. Good southern hospitality here in Louisiana. Come on, you've got to have more than that. Okay, family. So most of the time, I think as good Americans, we think of something that relates to entertaining, right? It's having friends and family in our home to have food, play games, whatever it might be. Uh, or we think of the Food Network. We think of Martha Stewart or you know, Paula Dean or whatever that might be. Um, You know, there's actually a hospitality industry that involves hotels, restaurants, cruise ships. But normally we think of some form of of entertaining. Now, a long time ago, I I heard someone say, and I think this is helpful, but it's not good enough, but it's helpful. I heard someone say a long time ago that the difference between hospitality and entertaining as the entertaining actually puts the emphasis on you as the host, where hospitality puts the emphasis on your guest. Now, again, that's not good enough, but it's pretty helpful. Because think about it. When we entertain, when, they, when the people that we're entertaining, when they leave our house, what's one of the last things they say as they're walking out the door? <coughs> Next time, our place, right? They want to pay you back, right? Well, that's entertaining. Um, but, also when, but also, before somebody comes over and we entertain, what do we do before they get there? We clean, right? Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't have a clean house, but why do we do that? Well, I think part of the reason we do it is because we're concerned of the reflection our home's going to have on us, right? So do you see, 
what the difference is when we entertain, the emphasis is on us. Hospitality, the emphasis is on our guest. Well, this morning, I want us to consider what I think is a, a very, really powerful theme in Scripture. I think it's a very, a very powerful way of Jesus. Uh, I think it's a very powerful, what I would call a missional practice, and it's what I call biblical hospitality. So I usually use that adjective biblical to differentiate this form of hospitality from what most of us think of when we hear the word hospitality. Again, when we normally think of this, we think of entertaining. Well, true, genuine biblical hospitality is very different than what we think of when we think of the word entertaining, all right? So actually what I'd like to do this morning is I I want us to very briefly think a little bit about what the Old Testament says about hospitality, but I really want to focus on what the New Testament says about hospitality, and then we're going to get super practical about what does this look like, and why don't we do this? Why, why aren't we radically hospitable people, all right? In the Old Testament, really just one slide here, in the Old Testament, uh, it's really about how we treat and love on what Tim Keller, an author I really enjoy, he calls it the quartet of the vulnerable. So he says in the Old Testament, it's really about how we love, connect, and serve the the poor, the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. So in the Old Testament, that's pretty much what hospitality is about. It's about how do we love on, how do we identify with, love on, and serve the quartet of the vulnerable. And isn't that a great phrase? The quartet of the vulnerable. In the Old Testament, it was those four people groups, right? So also, as the slide says there, Uh, hospitality, especially to the stranger, is held in very high regard in the Old Testament. You actually see it in the book of Leviticus. It it actually is part of prescribing what it means to be holy. So in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 33, it says, When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The stranger residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners, you were once foreigners in Egypt. So that little phrase, as yourself, in the Hebrew, it actually means they're just like you. So in other words, treat them in a way because they were just like you, or one day, or once, you were just like them. So in the Old Testament, hospitality, very simply, is about that quartet of the vulnerable. How we, how we understand, love, connect, and serve them. But when we move to the New Testament, I think it gets even more powerful. So in the New Testament... The Greek word for hospitality, it's actually a combination of two words. It's the word phileo for love, and it's the word xenos for stranger. So every time you see the word hospitality in the New Testament, it literally means love of stranger. Now that doesn't sound like entertaining, does it? I mean, hospitality is about us loving the stranger. Now Jesus, he kind of pushes the envelope a bit on this whole idea of biblical hospitality. I love this passage. Oh no, one other passage here. Just in Matthew chapter 25, um, Jesus really hammers away at the stranger in the parable of the sheep and the goats. And in fact, Jesus pretty much says here that when we accept the stranger, when we love the stranger, we're actually receiving or accepting Jesus. And when we reject the stranger, we're actually rejecting Christ. So most of you are probably very familiar with this parable. So Jesus says, Then the king says to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by the Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit. Then the righteous will answer him, But Lord... 
When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king replied, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So Jesus is saying, when you welcome the stranger, when you identify and actually welcome the stranger in, you are very much, in a sense, welcoming Christ. So then, in Luke chapter 14, I love this passage. Jesus, this is where Jesus really kind of pushes the envelope a bit on this concept of hospitality. So again, a passage most of you are very familiar with. Jesus says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Now, I always think it's kind of funny that he throws in rich neighbors. (laughs) So don't just invite your family and friends and don't invite your rich neighbors. So he said, why why not? Why wouldn't we do that? Well, Jesus says, because they are, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. That's what I was saying earlier when we got started. When we entertain, right when people are leaving at the end of the night, they say, hey, you know, come to our place next time. See, that's entertaining. So Jesus says, don't do that. Now, it's fine to have friends and family over, right? Let's say that's a good thing, right? It's a great thing. But biblical hospitality is way much more than that. I mean, Jesus is saying, in a sense, don't just invite your friends and family because when they leave, they're going to say, next time, our place. So entertaining, there's a sense of kind of payback. Does that make sense? But Jesus says, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. So do you see already how powerful this theme of biblical hospitality in the New Testament is? It's about the love of stranger, but it's also about extending it to those that cannot reciprocate. It's about extending hospitality to those that have no way of paying us back. That doesn't sound like entertaining, does it? So then there's lots of other passages, just four real quick ones. Romans 12, Paul writes, Rejoice in hope, be patient in suffering, persevere in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, extend hospitality to strangers. And once again, in the Greek, that word extend, I actually think a better translation of that word is pursue. It's not just extend, but in a sense, Paul's saying we need to go out and pursue opportunities to love strangers. (laughs) That's true biblical hospitality. We actually ought to be kind of like in the streets pursuing opportunities to extend hospitality. Hebrews 13, so I didn't become a believer until I was almost 30 years old. And I remember the first time I read this verse, it kind of freaked me out just a little bit. Hebrews chapter 13, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. So, I mean, that's kind of a crazy passage, isn't it? So sometimes when we extend hospitality to the stranger, when we love the stranger, the author of Hebrews is saying, in some cases, you may actually be entertaining angels. 1 Timothy 3.2, the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. Now, it's interesting, in some tribes or denominations, you know, we like to park on this passage to kind of talk about the qualifications of a leader or an elder or a deacon. And... Different denominations like to kind of highlight different words or phrases in that sentence, but rarely, if ever, do we focus on the word hospitable. I mean, that leaders of the church ought to be radically 
hospitable. They ought to love the stranger. They ought, ought to pursue hospitality. They ought to look for opportunities to extend it to those that can't pay them back. And then finally, 1 Peter, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. So, in the most basic sense, hospitality is about love of stranger. But who is the stranger? Well, I like to say in a strict sense, a stranger isn't just those that we do not know. In a strict sense, strangers are those that are disconnected from basic relationships. So in a sense, extending hospitality is about inviting people into a relationship with us, but also inviting them into our network of relationships. Does that make sense? So here's, here's the point here I, I want you to really get. That I do believe biblical hospitality is about creating physical environments to welcome people into. But even more than that, it's a mindset. It's actually a posture that we take towards other people. It's about opening our lives to other people. Does that make sense? It's about giving a voice to those that rarely have a voice. So it's, a, it's not just about creating physical environments and welcoming people into our home. But it's really about how we open up our lives to other people. So it's funny. Um, gosh, it's probably been just a couple of months ago. But I was in the Northeast, and uh, there was kind of this whole day. We were doing training kind of on this topic of hospitality. And there was a young girl there that, uh, in kind of a time of question and answer, and before we even got to this, I mean, she didn't get this for me. This, she got this herself. But she lived in this tiny, tiny little studio apartment in New York City. And I, I can't remember for sure, but I think it was like 200 square feet. I mean, it was like super tiny. And she talked about how difficult it was to create a physical environment to be hospitable because she hardly had any space for herself. But it was interesting. She said, but you know what? Every morning when I get on the train to go to work, every morning I get on the train, and every evening when I get back on the train to come home, she says, when I enter into the train, I say to myself, what does it look like for me to be hospitable to the people on this train? So I thought, that's it. I mean, that's a beautiful picture of it's a mindset. It, it is about creating physical environments, but it's also about our posture or our mindset towards other people. So if we were to boil all of that down, all of biblical hospitality down, if we had to boil it down to one word, for me, it would be the word in, inclusion or inclusive. Now, you know, sometimes I think that word inclusive makes some Christians a little uncomfortable. It's like, uh, but let me tell you, Jesus was radically inclusive. <laughs> Jesus was radically hospitable. So what's the opposite of the word inclusive? Exclusive, right? Um, you know, if we had time and, and we could all like pause here for a few moments, I'll bet every single one of us could think of a time when we were excluded for a certain group or, 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 or activity. And if you really pause and think about a time that you felt excluded, it's painful, isn't it? I mean, being excluded can be very hurtful. Well, here's the point. There are tens of thousands of people that live daily lives of exclusion. And who better than us? I mean, who better than us as followers of Jesus who was radically inclusive and radically hospitable? Who better than us to kind of break through the bonds of exclusion and be radically inclusive? I mean, who better than us to be radically hospitable and not only create physical environments, but actually welcome people into a relationship with us, but our network of relationships. Do you see how powerful this can be? I mean, it really, it's a powerful, that Old Testament, the quartet of the vulnerable, and then you would consider what real hospitality throughout the New Testament, what it really means, and the words that Jesus speaks, and the model that Jesus that shows us. It's a very powerful theme, and I just think it must be 
kind of a missionary practice that we have to re-engage in, that we have to recapture as missionary followers of Jesus, we need to be radically hospitable people. So here's where we get real practical. Uh, Why don't we do this? (laughs) I mean, why aren't most of us, why aren't we radically hospitable? Because I think... uh, even though we know Jesus was radically inclusive and we ought to be radically inclusive, uh, most of the people outside the church walls, uh, they don't think us as, as being inclusive, do they? They think us as being very exclusive. So why is that? Why, why aren't we radically hospitable? Well, I think there's multiple reasons, but this morning I want to share just very briefly two reasons, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about what does it look like then to overcome these barriers. But as it, as it relates to the barriers of, of being radically hospitable, I think the very first one is what I call the lack of margin. I mean, most of the time when you talk about hospitality with people, one of the main reasons people will push back and say, I can't do that, it has to do with time. It's just like, I'm just too busy. We don't have time to be hospitable to the people up and down our street. I like to say, you can't add hospitality to an already overburdened life. So this little phrase of lack of margin, I think it's good language for the church to to kind of accept and talk about. Here's what I mean by lack of margin. It actually comes from a book that was written about 20 years ago called Margin. It was written by a a Christian psychiatrist by the name of Richard Swinson. And he uses, I think this is a beautiful metaphor. He says if you open any book, it doesn't matter what the book is, open any, any book, you would never see the words on the page or the ink on the page go all the way to the top of the page, the bottom of the page, and the left and right of the page, right? You'd never see that. In fact, if that's the way every page was in a book, you'd probably hate the publisher. But he said, instead, every single page of every single book, there's this white space that goes around the page that we call a margin, right? Well, he uses that as a metaphor to say we have to have margin in our lives. We have to have time margin, financial margin, relational margin. And when you don't know you don't have, let's say, for example, time margin, if you're 15 minutes late for one thing and it makes you 30 minutes late for the next and then you're an hour and a half late for the next, then you know there's no margin in your schedule. Well, a little phrase I like to use all the time as it relates to relationships, I like to say relationships happen in the margins. So in other words, we have to have relational and time margins in our lives for God to kind of spontaneously interrupt us to have relationships with other people. Does that make sense? We can't be radically hospitable if there's no margin in our lives. So just a couple of quotes from the book to kind of drive this home a little bit. So Swinson says, without margin, we are incapable of relational spontaneity in our neighborhood. So that's true, isn't it? I mean, think like if you really want to get to know your neighbor Bob and you notice, you know, on Thursday night, Bob's taking his his trash down to the curb, and you just get home, but you know you've got somewhere you've got to go really quickly, and you're thinking, man, I'd love to go over and say hi to Bob, but you know, I, I got that place I got to go. Well, there's no margin. And when, and, and when there is no margin, there, there's no space for spontaneity. Without margin, we're uninterested in the opportunities to serve our neighbors. I mean, when we're just so busy with family stuff at home that we really don't have much interest in trying to figure out ways to love and serve and get to know our neighbors. Without margin, we're unable to even think about planning time to spend with others. So do you see how margin, it just kind of sucks the opportunity out of our daily routine. So then Swinson goes on to say, margin creates buffers. It gives us room to breathe, freedom to act, and time to adapt. Only then will we be able to truly nourish our relationships. Only then will we be available and interruptible for the purposes of God. So I would guess most every one of us in this room, this is an issue. Is it? 
<laughs> I see a few heads nodding. So then what can we do to create margin just to get super practical? All right, well, so here's three. This is really simple. Three A words. Now, I have a Baptist background, so, you know, every word has to start with the same letter. I don't know if you knew that. It's like a rule somewhere, unwritten rule. I don't know. So three A words. So the first word is audit. I actually think if this is an issue for you, if you feel like you don't have margin in your life, then we actually need to do an audit of our schedule. We need to sit down with someone and actually look and see, do we have margin in our lives? I actually think this is a good thing for us to do individually. I actually think this is a good thing to do as a church family. You know, as a church, sometimes do we keep people so busy with church stuff that they don't have time to spend time with people? So we have to actually do an audit. And part of, like, checking your schedule is also the recognition that, that you don't always have to say yes. You know, you can say no sometimes. I love there's an author, her name's Anne Lamott. She, she has this line. She says this. She says, the word no is a complete sentence. So in other words, you can say that. You know? <laughs> and in fact, it's a mathematical necessity. You know, like every day, if you had like 10 really important things you need to do, but you only have time to do seven, then you have to say no to three, right? So there has to be an audit. I think the second A word is probably the most helpful. We talk about, whenever you think about this whole idea of radical hospitality, think of the word alignment, not addition. So it's not about adding more stuff to what you're already busy schedule, but it's about aligning the rhythms of your life with the rhythms of the lives of other people. So, for example, the best example probably uh, is most of us eat 21 meals a week. I know some of you probably eat more than 21 meals a week, but most of us eat 21 meals a week. Well, alignment is to say, well, what if I give two or three or four of those meals every week to someone else? In other words, what if I invite someone else in to share a meal, two or three of those 21 meals? That's about alignment, not addition. So you think about what is it you are already doing? What is it that you love to do? What, what hobbies or activities? And then what does it look like to do those hobbies and activities with other people? So back in Kansas City, for example, um, we're big Kansas City Chiefs fans. Well, Sunday afternoon, we're going to be watching the Chiefs game anyway. So what does it look like to invite a neighbor over to watch the game with us? Does that make sense? It's alignment, not addition. And then the third A word, accountability. I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory. I just think we need to do this with someone else. And in, in most cases, it's probably your spouse. It might be a good friend that someone can actually ask you on a weekly basis or every other week, how are you doing with this margin thing? Are you carving out time and space to spend with other people? Does that make sense? So I think this is a huge barrier, but I want to share one more barrier before we wrap this up. So I think lack of margin might be the greatest one that we just, again, as I said, you can't add hospitality to an already overburdened life. But the second major barrier, I think, is fear. Um, You know, I told you earlier, the Greek word for hospitality, phylloxenia, most Christians don't know that word, but they do know the word xenophobia. (laughs) So instead of love of stranger, xenophobia means fear of stranger. And I think we kind of have this unhealthy stranger danger mentality that, that has actually kind of increased in, in the midst of evangelical, you know, American evangelicalism. So seriously, this goes back, I mean, really, while we were just singing, I, ha- I wasn't familiar with that song, uh, You Make Me Brave. Was that the name? I don't know. Is that the name of the song, Weston? I mean, that line about you call us beyond the shore into the waves. You make me brave. Uh, seriously, I was getting emotional singing those, those lines. I mean, that's part of what this is about. It's to overcome this crazy fear that we have of the stranger. Now, I'm not saying there's not times that we need to be wise and there's wisdom. And, you know, we talked about yesterday, there's great wisdom in community that I think mission is best done as a communal activity, that we do it with other people. But I just think, I, I'm not sure, 
when we sing that song, you know, beyond the shore into the waves, um, are we really open to that? <laughs> or, or do we allow fear of the stranger um, to get in the way of, of us being radically hospitable? And I think the single greatest place this rears its ugly head is actually in our homes. I think it's actually in the way we understand the family. So this, this, this may step on some toes, and, but I always like to say, look, this still steps on my toes, but there was a day this would have crushed my toes. Um, but I want to read you a quote um, from a good friend of mine. Her name's Deb Hirsch. So there was a book about 10, well, I know it's probably about five years ago. Um, Alan and Deb Hirsch wrote a book. It's called Untamed. And in the book, Deb writes a chapter called Refocusing on the Family. So it's a little play on words. Refocusing on the Family. And in it, she talks about how our desire for safety and security around our family has come to the point where it's actually disastrous for us being radically hospitable. That we've kind of allowed our desire for safety and security and our fear of the stranger to get in the way of us being hospitable people. So I just, she articulates this way better than I could, so I just want to read you this quote, um, and then let's talk about it just a little bit. So it's two slides. I apologize for reading so much to you, but again, I just think Deb really nails this. So when she says our space, she's talking about her homes. So she says, this is our space, and those we may invite into that space are carefully chosen based on whether they will upset the delicate status quo, inconvenience us, or pose a threat to our perceived safety. In other words, visitors, especially strange ones, stress us out. And while this is in some sense culturally understandable, the negative result in terms of our spirituality is that the family has effectively become a pernicious idol. Let me pause there a minute. I mean, that's really strong language. The word pernicious there, it means wicked. I mean, she's saying our kind of unhealthy desire for safety and security around our family has actually turned the family, she would say, into an idol. Now, remember, Deb said this. I didn't. So get mad at her, not me, okay? She goes on to say, in such a situation, she calls it missional hospitality, is seen as a threat, not as an opportunity to extend the kingdom so an idol is born. One more slide. It is not hard to see how this is absolutely disastrous from a missional perspective. I love these last two lines. Our families and our homes should be places where people can experience a foretaste of heaven. Where the church is rightly viewed as a community of the redeemed from all walks of life. But instead, our fears restrict us from letting go of the control and safety we have spent years cultivating. Ouch, right? I mean, does, does that resonate with anyone? And again, I'm telling you, that I, this still steps on my toes. But there was a day, it, it, you know, I may have been offended by this quote, you know, 10 years ago. Um, but I think she's right. I, I think it's really hard to argue. So let me share with you one little thing that we did several years ago to just try to kind of break the bonds of this. Now, I always like to say this is descriptive, not prescriptive, okay? In other words, this is just something we did. I'm not saying this is what you should do. Although if my wife was here this morning, she would say, no, I'm pretty sure this is what you should do too. (laughs) 
But um, so the house that we live in right now in Kansas City, we moved there 12 years ago. And one of the reasons we bought the house that we bought was it had an extra bedroom. Well, I'm embarrassed to tell you today, the reason I wanted an extra bedroom is because I wanted a home office. And I had a really sweet home office. (laughs) But one night, about seven years ago, my oldest son and my wife and I were all in the living room on our laptops. And just kind of out of the blue, I noticed my wife looked up from her computer, and she looked over at my son Joshua and myself, and she said, hey, I got a question for you two. And I knew we were in trouble. (laughs) And she said, so when was the last time either one of you went into the office? And then I really (laughs) knew I was in trouble. I said, well, um, I don't know, maybe like a week ago I went in to get a pen or a paper clip or something. And she said, this is stupid. She actually said, this is asinine. (laughs) But she said, this is stupid. She said, we've got a perfectly good bedroom that we can't use because we turned it into an office. So that perfectly good bedroom that we converted to an office, we converted back to a bedroom just to put ourselves in a better position to have people in our home. Now, I think we've always been very hospitable people. I mean, my wife is a great cook, and she loves to cook. She loves to cook extra every meal. And, you know, we've always had people. I mean, always since we've been married, we've always had people in our homes for meals and all of that. But still, if I had to be honest with you, I'd go back to Deb's quote and and say they were still pretty carefully chosen. You know, are they going to upset the delicate status quo? Are they going to inconvenience us, to use Deb's quote? So to kind of push the envelope a little bit further, about that same time, about seven years ago, we decided to become foster parents. And over that last seven years, we talked a little bit about this last night, but we've had somewhere between 50 and 60 kiddos come through our home. And we've actually lost count. If we counted how many, because a whole bunch of them came back a second or third time, unfortunately, that, you know, then it might be closer to 80. But in the midst of all of that, um, finally just about, it's been almost three years ago now, one of those foster kiddos we adopted, and I always have to show a picture of Chloe, because it always gets a few, uh, at least from the women. Um, But the reason I like telling that story is to say this, that becoming a foster family, uh, number one, it's obvious, it's an incredible opportunity to influence the lives of children. Number two, it's an incredible opportunity to influence the lives of parents, which in 90% of the cases is a single mom. But number three, it's the single best thing we've ever done for our two boys. I mean, it's the single best thing we've ever done for our family. Now, and, and, and that's the thing about true, genuine biblical hospitality. Just when you think it's for the benefit of the other, you discover you're the real beneficiary. So I love this quote. There's a book called Radical Hospitality. I love this. It says, the question is not how dangerous is that stranger. The real question is how dangerous will I become if I'm not more open? And see, I'm telling you, that's what, and you guys know this, that's what fear does. You know, fear actually makes our lives and our world smaller. When we become radically inclusive, when we become radically hospitable, it actually makes our world bigger. Does that make sense? So, I just want to finish with this quote. Uh, This is from an author I love, Henry Nouwen. I just think Nouwen, this quote, kind of summarizes just really what it looks like to be hospitable, but also inclusive, what it looks like to, to live a ministry of presence in our neighborhood. Once again, I apologize, it's a long quote, but I think you'll see after I read it uh, why I think this is a great way to wrap things up. So, Nouwen says, more and more, the desire grows in me to simply walk around, greet people, enter their homes, sit on their doorsteps, play ball, and be known as someone who wants to live with them. It is a privilege to have the time to practice this simple 
ministry of presence. I love that little phrase. Simple ministry of presence. It's about being with people. And then he says, though, he says, hey, this doesn't come easy. Still, it is not as as simple as it seems. My own desire to be useful, to do something significant, or to be part of some impressive project is so strong that soon my time is taken up by meetings, conferences, study groups, and workshops that prevent me from walking the streets. It is difficult not to have plans, not to organize people around an urgent cause, and not to feel that you are working directly for social progress. But I wonder more and more if the first thing shouldn't be to know people by name, to eat and drink with them, to listen to their stories and to tell your own, and to let them know with words, handshakes, and hugs (laughs) that you don't simply like them, but you truly love them. So once again, I would just say, who better than us? I mean, as followers of Jesus, we know we've been created as social relational beings. God has created us to be, of course, in a relationship with him, but he's also created us to be in relationships with each other. So who's going to do this better than followers of Jesus? Who better than us? Let's pray. Father God, just thank you again um, for who you are. We thank you that you indeed are radically hospitable. You're radically inclusive. You came to be with us, to be among us. You came to invite us into a relationship with you. Father, I I pray this morning that, that maybe you would help us see things just a little bit differently than maybe we did this morning before we came in. That we would see that being blessed in our relationship with you ought to motivate us, propel us, spur us on to invite people into a relationship, invite people into a relationship with us, into our network of relationships, and ultimately into a relationship with you. So I just pray this morning that you, re- you help us recognize that we are indeed created as social relational beings, and unfortunately there are tens of thousands of people that feel isolated, they're experiencing loneliness, they feel disengaged and displaced from the people around them, Help us see those people like never before. And then, Father, I pray you would give us the wisdom, but you would give us the courage. You would help us be brave to step in relationally with those people that we know are dying to be connected. They're dying to experience genuine hospitality from us. And it's in your name we pray because you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Brad. Um, We're going to enter into a time of communion this morning, and we have communion stations that are set up on both sides of the stage. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we want to invite you to join us this morning um, as we celebrate the body and blood of Jesus. And um, I would encourage you just based on some of the things that Brad has said this morning, let's take just a few moments and and spend some time with the Father, spend some time in prayer, just reflecting on um, how some of what he said relates to our lives, right? We, I, I know for me, this is deeply convicting because I feel like our culture has, has taught me as a parent 
to kind of sequester my family inside of our home. And yet we are surrounded by neighbors who we've been called to love. And um, what would it look like? What would it look like for your family to venture outside of the walls of your home and to truly start um, being with people? I think as we celebrate the body and blood of Jesus, we remember that Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And we want to praise him and worship him today for leaving his place of comfort and coming to us and being present with us and for still being present with us. And so let's pray this morning, and I encourage you to take a few moments to reflect and then come as you feel led. Father, we give you praise and honor today, and, and I pray that you would give us insight and wisdom to understand how to follow you into the places where we live and into our workplaces, into our schools, God, into our social settings to reflect your heart and your desire that we would be a people who are characterized by our love of stranger and by our desire to care for people who are not like us, to care for the vulnerable, the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, the refugee. God, we pray that you give us eyes to see that. We pray that you give us hearts for that. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this time of celebration and commemoration and reflection on how Jesus' sacrifice gives us the opportunity to be reconciled to you, Father. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.